Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of My Life in Four Trades. With me today is Saad Shah, managing partner and co-founder at Noetic Fund. Hi, Saad. It's great to see you. Welcome to My Life Hi, in Matt. Four Trades. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Good to see you again. I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. So before we jump into the trades, it's our tradition to just learn a little bit about your background. So where'd you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Well, uh, my background is a pretty much of a nomadic background, really. I, I'm the son of a diplomat, a career diplomat. My father uh, served about uh, close to 35 years for the Pakistani government. So we moved around as diplomats every three or four years. Just pack up your bags and go to a different city, country, culture, you know. And that was very interesting. It was a core part of my upbringing because I had to learn how to adapt really fast if I didn't want to get beaten up in the schoolyards. <laughs> so we, uh, we grew up in uh, countries and cities like Abu Dhabi. I was in Ottawa. Uh, parents were posted to Burma in Yangon. Uh, but my formative years were spent in Berlin, in East Berlin, in fact. And this is in the mid-'80s. So this is, you know, right at the, the cross of, of, you know, just before perestroika really took off. And those were very, very important years for me um, because my siblings and I would study in West Berlin. So every day we'd cross the border to go to school. And it was like going through 50-year time warp every time we crossed the border. And it would take me sometimes an hour and a half to get to school because I had to get on the streetcar in East Berlin. And the streetcars at that time were still very much, hadn't changed at all since World War II, at all. So it would kind of meander its way through these bullet riddled buildings and finally get to the border. And then you had to cross the border and there was a protocol to follow there. And on one of those instances, Maggie, uh, I almost got shot because I ran across the border and you're never supposed to run. And oh. I ran. I could see my bus and I was late and uh, um, and I wanted to make it. And uh, they cocked the guns and they put on the iron and. I stopped and I was sent back home and uh, I put my head down and was just sort of thinking and wondering what was that all about and what is life all about and why yeah. are we here to ask all those questions. So That's a lot for a, a kid or a teenager to try yeah. to comprehend. How did, how did you even make sense of all of that? Well, you know, it, it, it was one of those, um, it was a catalyst for me because it kind of got me to really pay attention to my surroundings. Berlin's a very interesting city, right? It's 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 really you know East and West Berlin essentially are cut up into four different divisions. You had the British, French, you know, you had the um, the American, and then you had um, um, uh, East Berlin, which was really uh, Putin's territory for the most part. Remember, Putin played a very important role in Berlin. He was the head of the KGB. He was based in Dresden, and my dad's told me that I've met him several times. I don't remember, mm. but he. Um, I needed to come and, and sort of share a lot of information with the Pakistani government about what was happening in Afghanistan. At that time, there was still a, a lot of Russian interest in Afghanistan. So they were always 
you know, exchanging information. So I saw this guy going, and I don't know who he was, uh, but later on I found out that, hey, that was, that was Putin. I was like, wow. So when you grow up in that kind of environment, you know that the house is bugged. You know that there's, um, that you're, when you pick up the phone, you hear the Stasi officers often speaking, or oftentimes it was the, the Russian officers speaking. And then they would go, shh, shh quiet, they're on the phone. Like, I can hear you guys. I just pick up the phone. It's like, <laughs> but uh, and then and then you you know you you have a conversation. It was it was bugged. You could hear static in the walls, so you knew that, and so you had to be very conscious of everything you did and said. And so at a young age, when you're when you're asked to be very aware of your environment, uh, both in terms of politically, socially, environmentally, uh, you're wired differently. <laughs> Yeah, right? and so that that did have a huge impact on me and uh, and upbringing, but it was also an incredibly enriching experience. It yeah. was an incredibly enriching experience. You couldn't do very much in East Berlin, so I spent a lot of my time as a nerd in the you know <laughs> uh, uh, at the Boulder Museum, which is the, the really big museum in East Berlin, because um, they had the gates of Babylon, the gates of Ishtar, like they were just you know dropped down there. And it was an incredible museum, still is. Uh, but that's where I'd hang out and uh, looking at antiquities. And uh, <laughs> just it tells you what a sad state of affair it was. But I won't ask about your social life at that time. But were you, were you aware of money at a young age? Because you ultimately make your way into finance. Were you interested in that? Was it math? How, how, you know, how, how do you connect to that? No, well, it, it, yes, because um, you know the exchange rate between East and West German mark was was eleven, twelve, fifteen to one at one point, right? But the buying power was pretty similar, right? So you had a tremendous amount of of you know uh, um, um, trades going on. Folks that would come into East Berlin, they'd buy everything from caviar, art, musical instruments. Um, you know, Bratislava crystal, Meissen porcelain, and then go across the border and sell it for, you know, uh, just egregious amounts. Um, so what I became aware of, and, and, you know, essentially I kind of took my career initially into, you know, foreign exchange and commodity trading, which makes sense, is that I was very, very, very familiar with uh, just the, the nature of, of FX and foreign exchange and also a lot of the commodity trades that were going on at the time. Mm-hmm. So, but... It wasn't a, a core focus for me. I think what was particularly interesting for me is just to kind of learn more about, um, you know, some of the uh, um, esoteric thinkers in Germany, right? I mean, um, I wouldn't call Carl Jung an esoteric thinker necessarily, and and, and he was Swiss, of course, but, um, you know, folks like just the, the extent to which, um, you know, Nietzsche's philosophy, Schopenhauer's philosophy had an impact. Humboldt's philosophy had an impact, um, and uh, and so I got into philosophy and more so the esoteric side of some of these philosophical ideas at an early age. That's what you do as a 16, 17-year-old when you're in East Berlin, I guess. I don't know. Did, um, you, did your family think that you were going to follow in the footsteps and also be a diplomat? That's what I wanted to do, Maggie. Absolutely. I wanted to be a diplomat, much like my father, much like um, you know uh, other members of my family that that had been serving uh, had served in the UN, and uh, and that's the that's the path I wanted to go down. So that was the path for me. 
Um, if not that, then uh, the idea was for me to look to join the family business, uh, which was you know back in Pakistan, which is predominantly in steel manufacturing. That's that's the family business. So uh, you know when you're you know when you're born, you're given a name. You're given. You're told this is your religion. You're told this is your community. This is your neighborhood. This is your family, and then you spend the rest of your life protecting it. You're, you're born right away with wearing many different masks. And I think one of the things that started to happen to me early on in my teens was I started to realize that I'm wearing these masks and start to question, is that really me? Is that who I am? Mm. And then spending, you know, the, the rest of the years starting to take off the many masks. Yeah. And so I and know that this is what self. I'm told. It's exactly it. And I think the yeah. greatest sin that you can ever commit as a human being is to not live up to your own fullest potential and be you. Because the other, you know, close to 8 billion people on this planet are already taken. So who are you? <laughs> right? What's your voice? And I think that sort of, you know, um, a school of thought, that way of thinking came quite early in my life. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see... Whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holes barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. I love that sentiment. So your first trade is one of your best trades. And it sounds like it's, it's part of that journey of finding your true self. And that was walking away from a potential job at Lehman to move to Toronto. So sort of set the scene for us. This was, I think, in the mid-90s. What's going on in your life? Are you already working in finance? Are you trying to break into the business? What's happening with Saad around that time? Yeah, you know, um, just to kind of end the Berlin bit, in 1990, um, you know, the wall came down. I was on the wall on, on 9th of November, 1989. And then 1990 was the big event. And it was, um, it was you know, kind of came to a beautiful denouement by way of, Pink Floyd performing the wall on, you know, on stage where the stage was literally half of the stage was in, you know, East Berlin and the other was in West Berlin. It was a phenomenal concert and that took place in July. And I remember the, the tickets to go to that concert were 50 Deutschmark, which is pretty expensive, but ultimately they just couldn't keep the people out. So they, everybody ended up, uh, they had to break down the fences and everybody showed up and that was just a beautiful concert. And I left there to come to the U.S. I went to Columbia. I graduated from Columbia uh, with a degree in economics and political science because I thought I'd, I'd go and join uh, the diplomatic service. And um, I had a, a, a very good friend of my father's that was uh, at the U.N. and I showed up at his door and I said, hey, I'm about to graduate. I'm ready to go. Uh, I want to join the U.N. You know, can you point me in the right direction? And he said, well, you're a little bit, you're cut out of luck. And I said, why? And he said, because every country has a quota. And at mm -hmm. that time, I was a Pakistani citizen. And I said, every country has a quota. And the quota for your country is full up. And it's going to be full up for the next two years. I'm like, well, what do I do? And he said, well, I don't know. 
maybe banking. <laughs> and like, okay. Uh, okay. So I said, fine. I, I was kind of upset. I said, maybe I'll show up in another year's time and they'll put me somewhere, even if it's handing out blankets somewhere in the world. Um, I, I joined the UN, uh, but, uh, but it was, it was a no go. And I had to pivot and start to think about banking and investment banking or finance. Um, and I had a, I had a semester, two semesters left at Columbia and I, I got into the Columbia business school finance, uh, uh, class. I convinced the professor to let me in. She let me in, Professor Ashley. And, and that was great. That was, that was a, that was an eye-opening thing for me because all of a sudden I realized, wow, this is, this is something I enjoy. So I pivoted to, to looking at finance. And after I graduated, I was at that time applying to all these different places. Lehman picked, picked it up, picked up the resume, called me in. I went for a couple of interviews. And, um, and at that time, I had a girlfriend that was, uh, had just graduated from MIT. She's Canadian and a uh, Canadian citizen. And, um, and, and now she's my wife of 27 years. Uh, uh, so she said, look, I'm going to go to Toronto. I'm going to go to Canada. And I said, uh, Toronto. Uh, and she goes, you know, you should come. And uh, I, said, I said, all right. And I received a letter that said, please come in for a final interview. And um, the timing is, is, is this is lining up as very difficult timing. How, first of all, how did you have a girlfriend at MIT? If you were at Columbia, where'd you meet? We, we met in Boston because I had a, we had a lot of, I had a lot of friends in Boston and Boston was the party town. Ask, ask anybody. Like, I went to school. So in many universities. I know, I know of what you speak. It's a lot of friends, a lot, a lot of friends in Boston. And so, uh, you know, it's, uh, they wouldn't come to New York as much as, as I'd go to Boston. And, and, and I met her, we had, you know, mutual friends and I met her when I was literally 18. Ah, and, okay. So you've been uh, going but, out but, for a little while at this point. Well, we, we, we started, yeah, we were friends for a couple of years and, and then we started to go out and then when she graduated, I said, well, what do you want to do? We could live in New York. We could live in LA. We can live, you know, wherever. And, and she goes, Toronto. I'm like, um, okay, all right. And particularly, it wasn't really in Toronto either. It was like two hours away from Toronto in a city called London, Ontario. She had landed a great job with 3M. And huh. the Canadian headquarters for 3M uh, are, are in London, Ontario. So I said, you know what? It's, uh, you know, I, I may be in a better, uh, in a competitive environment there because uh, um, maybe they don't have as many Columbia grads or whatnot. I thought, you know, this would be easy, perhaps. Was I was I wrong? So um, I gave up that opportunity to go to Lehman Brothers, but the, the Lehman Brothers job was to take place in World Trade Center, building number one, um, the, North, the North Tower. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there literally, I don't think, is uh, a week that goes by now where I don't think about what could have potentially happened, right? Because I think of myself and I go, okay, God forbid, this is a situation that's happened. What would you have done? Would you have made it, you know, made a beeline to the to the exits or to the elevator? What, what would you have done? It's particularly painful for me because I lost a very dear friend who was not working in the World Trade Center, who happened to go there that day for breakfast mm. up in the in the in the windows on the world. Yeah, that's right. And there's a big um, conference there that day. And he perished. He perished in that. Um, and he was, uh, he was a classmate of mine at Columbia, uh, Raja Tishamul Haq. So, um, you know, uh, yeah. So it doesn't I, I, even I, feel a theoretical to you. It literally feels like that could have been you. Yes, it could have, because I, I, you know, I, I, I feel that I wouldn't have been one of those guys that have made it. To, I would have probably, like, I just know myself, I would have been like, well, 
where's Joe and, and where's Peter? And I got to go see if they're in the bathroom and let's get everybody yeah. together and let's get everybody out. And, you know, yeah. It's a it's a real sliding door moment, isn't it? When you when you know that you made a decision in that moment that has these profound this profound outcome that you're reminded of all the time. I mean, you know, does that? It, it, how do you, how do you think? I mean, because we sell we we mark that anniversary every year. You must be constantly reminded of that. I have been thinking about death ever since that event happened at the border in berlin right <sighs> and then this is the second time where it's like where you start to think about well although you know it happened six years later but you know i, I don't know where i would have been and so you, you think about it a lot and i'm going to get to later on when we talk about the experience that i had in brazil because it all comes full circle and um and, and my fear of death ultimately went away. But, um, you know, it's, 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 it's needless to say, it's, it's, it's a very humbling experience, mm. right? And it makes you question so much. But it also makes you really uh, be so grateful for what you have mm. and make you stop and realize that, you know, gratitude is such an important, important part of the equation and don't lose sight of it. Yeah. And, um, and I think that that's, that's, a, you know, from a positive perspective, I think that's, that's what it really helped me to appreciate. So you certainly, we can understand from a life perspective, why this was the best trade. Not only are you with your then girlfriend, now wife, but you yeah. managed to avoid that outcome. What, what work-wise, how was the transition? It was, you know, I was of the opinion I'd show up and they'd be like, Saad, we've been waiting for you. Where have you been? And, uh, you know, thank you. And here's the national anthem and here's your, your citizenship. And, you know, we've got you a job uh, running a bank or something. And, and, you know, now. So I got there and it was like, listen, pal, you need, uh, you don't have a work permit. I'm like, no, so you got to apply for one. He said, okay, well, how long does that take? Well, I said, well, you apply for one, it may take about a year and a half, like a year and a half. And they're like, yeah. And now what I had done was, because I had given up my ability to go back to the States because I was under, you know, a, a foreign stu a student visa, um, um, I had to stay in Canada. And I was like, that's fine. And they said, well, one way to get around it is to get uh, one of the banks or, or any company to sponsor you. But the bar is pretty high to get sponsored. Right. And I didn't get sponsored. I uh, had to wait it out for a year and a half. But the only jobs I could get are jobs that could pay me sort of, you know, in cash. So I was a bartender. I was a waiter. But probably the most uh, interesting job that I had that I had for about nine months was as a door-to-door -door salesman. It was one of the only jobs that could pay you, and I refused um, to not pay for rent and you know for for my wife and I to be together. And so I joined as a door-to-door -door salesman. I went to remote areas of Ontario, knocking on doors, selling two-for-one certificates to golf courses, to restaurants. But I didn't see it as, um, you know, the door-to-door the -door way. I, I kind of, I was like, okay, here I am in, these, in this part of the world, and, uh, and, and I'm learning so much about the Canadian economy, the Canadian people. Mm -hmm. I'm learning about who are, you know, what, what the grievances are. But also, I am fine-tuning a skill that, um, you know, I needed fine-tuning, uh, quite frankly, which was you're showing up at somebody's door. They don't know you at all. You, you look like this. And and then you ring the doorbell, they open, they go, what do you want? And, and they're like, are you here to sell something? And and then you have to try and convince them 
within the next two or three minutes why they should part with $20. Everything we sold was $20. And, um, and that was something that I started to focus in on, which is how do you find a way to build that relationship with somebody in a very short period of time? And uh, how do you convey a narrative and a story? How do you, you know, really get to know them and understand, you know, the shoes that they're in? And, uh, and that was profound. I think that was profound. I think that's something that there's absolutely no MBA course or class that can ever teach you that. No, absolutely. Uh, it's the elevator pitch, but, but much more personal because you're not only having to sell something quickly, but you have to make that connection. Interesting that you recognize the connection part of it. Because, you know, that that's these days we talk about that. But back then, you know, sales is just sort of banging the phone. You see Wolf of Wall Street, you know, it's like arr, arr, barking at people. But but you sort of understood the connection. That's that's very interesting. Not only the connection, but you also, you know, it's important too that you had to understand them and then qualify them to say, like, do you, you know, so do you mm-hmm. go out to restaurants? Yes, I do. You know, what do you, where do you typically go here? Blah, blah, blah. And, and so you know, sales has a process to it. There's, there's a method to the madness there. And, um, uh, and, and that's what I learned, but more importantly, I really learned about what was happening in the economy and, and what folks were happy about or upset about. And, um, and, and I had to break my comfort zone. I really had to shatter my comfort zone. That Mm -hmm. was not very comfortable for me, but it ultimately became a cornerstone for me. So is that so you end up at RBC, you eventually do get a job in finance. Yes. Do you think that helped you, that experience that opened the door for you? Yeah, ultimately I got into a real estate banking um at uh, the Royal Bank of Canada and um um and that was that was great because now, you know, I was able to kind of um be in the area that I wanted to be in for the moment. Um real estate was not intellectually stimulating enough for me. I wanted to get more into the, you know, the market side of the equation, capital markets. Um, and I was always very fascinated by um, the trading floor. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I personally think that was just under the mask that I had to take off ultimately. But I, I managed to get onto the trading floor in debt syndication and then uh, spent some time there and then moved on to the foreign exchange desk, foreign exchange and commodity desk. And ultimately became um, the head of a financial engineering deal team for RBC, um, and you know it kind of did well at a at an early enough age there, where ultimately I realized, wait a second, uh, it's very myopic in the sense that it is very much focused on just a few distinct commodities that are important to Canada, that are important to RBC, mm-hmm. um, and the currencies also. It's not a big range of currencies. They're not really big in emerging market currencies. They're really focused on everything. CAD related, and they were the biggest players in, in, in you know, CAD and, and cross CAD currencies. So, but at the same time, it was it was an unbelievable experience. The core part of that job was to try and explain complexity. Mm-hmm. That how do you build a narrative where you're trying to explain complex trades to um, institutions and to those that are looking at at very complex mergers and acquisitions, and helping them understand how their exposures are going to be hedged. Mm. Right. At the same time, we were also talking to some other desks that were very sophisticated that wanted to, to punt, take a position really in the market. And they were looking at digital options or one-touch structures, which were quite risky at the time. But um, those were happening at that time. That was exciting time. I mean, prop desks have changed, of course, over the years, right? Mm. But at that time, it was like at the tail end of it, but it was still active and exciting. And 
you know, I had a limit that I could I could trade uh, uh, um, on a daily basis, and and it was fun and exciting. But ultimately, I kind of became you know got a little tired of it and bored of it. And I had heard about some some friends of mine um, that were looking to start a fund of funds business as well as a direct hedge fund. And that all of a sudden became very interesting. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, so that brings us to your second trade. And this is also one of your best. And that's the decision to leave RBC and to build diversified global asset management in 2006. So I think that you you sort of set up for us that it was the need for more intellectual stimulation or more a more challenging environment that led to it. Were you scared, though, to leave the security of RBC? I mean, you were doing very well there. I was doing very well. I was even told that, listen, don't mess things up. You're on a fast track here for a whole host of reasons. And, uh, and that, uh, things are going well for you. And I just felt that, look, um, uh, if, if I don't explore and push the limits in terms of who I am, then I'll be doing myself a disservice and going back to kind of like the old Kierkegaard, uh, uh Kierkegaard uh, quote that, that, that essentially says that if you're not living up to your fullest potential and then, then you're you're really committing a sin, and so I um I, I was um again the it, the focus at RBC at that time was quite narrow in terms of what they were doing, and all of a sudden you're looking at um a team that's uh, very interested in looking at these esoteric hedge fund strategies that didn't really exist. So what DGAM at that time was looking to do was they were seeding strategies that didn't exist before. It wasn't about seeding managers; it was about seeding seeding strategies. So they were one of the first ones to do reinsurance. They were trading precipitation and temperature around the world. They were one of the first ones to do commercial litigation finance, uh, music royalty. We had a very large library of, of music assets that every time it played on a radio station or elsewhere, we got a royalty from it, right? We were, in in a big way, we did film financing, and that we did with, with Dune Entertainment. Steve Mnuchin at the time was running that. And uh, we you know, were one of their biggest backers and backed them across 77 films that they did with 20th Century Fox. Wow. That's a really diverse, do you have to understand all of those? Were you kind of throwing yourself in and learning about all of those different markets? Was that necessary? You you had to, but what you had to really do was make sure that they knew what they were doing. (laughs) So of course you had to, you had to kind of dive in and, and truly understand what was the risk premium and why this was so engaging. But the approach that we took at DGAM was this. Look, we said to the institutions, you guys can manage the traditional hedge fund strategies yourself. You know, small, you know, kind of long, short and, and macro and, and, you know, trend following. Let us do, let us manage complexity for you, right? And I, I bring up that word complexity again, because my job was to now to explain the complexity to these, to say, here's where we feel and why we feel there's alpha here. And, and the alpha is fleeting. But it's all about sizing and timing of the strategy and tilting of the strategy. And, um, and this is why we feel it'll do well in, when, when markets are, are really stressed. And to be frank, you know, across all our strategies, there were a lot of complex credit trades, complex commodity trades. Pharmaceutical royalty was a really big one that we did. But the strategies did okay during when markets were doing well. But all of a sudden, when you hit 2007, 2008, 2009, 2011, we were outperforming. 
We were one of the first ones to do tail hedging, right? But very complex version of tail hedging, right? We were trying to find the cheapest form of volatility that would really hedge our tails, our left tails, uh, during some very stressed market environments. And um, and we did well in those in those environments, right? So we had the ability now, all of a sudden, where everybody else was down anywhere from 25 to 40%, we were flat to a little bit high, but we had capital available to deploy in those markets. Mm. And so the trajectory for DGAM was really during those years. Um, and that ultimately caught the attention of the Carlyle Group. Right. Which And so they buy, they buy DGAM. Um, was that a hard decision for you all to go under the umbrella? Because you kind of sound like you're out there pushing the envelope, doing things no one else is doing. There's a sort of excitement to that. And Carlyle's a well-known traditional, you know, they, they're kind of big. Did it feel like you were selling out? I mean, you were selling, but did it feel like you were selling out or did, how, how did you all view that? Yeah. You know, we were closing in on about 10 years by then. Right. And, um, what we really needed to kind of take it to the next level, we were already close to about 7 billion in assets. Mm. And, uh, what we really needed was, that form of permanent capital behind us mm. that would allow us to now get to the 20, 30 billion. And we felt that Carlisle was the perfect shop for it because they had already entered into the hedge fund foray, right? They had taken over a lot of assets from Peters Hill Fund, um, um, you know, uh, which, which was at Goldman. And uh, so they had Claren Road, they had uh, Vermillion, they had Trafalgar. So um, we felt, okay, uh, they understand hedge funds. We think they understand hedge funds. So let's now, you know, talk to them about it. And look, David is is in, incredibly charismatic, charming. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. Uh, I've learned a lot from him um, and uh, spent a decent amount of time with him for a short period of time, but but it was concentrated time. Um, and they were going down a path that at the time, you know, made sense. Uh, I, I think ultimately uh, it wasn't the best trade for either of us. Ultimately, I think it was just that really, you know, you had to speak a, a different nomenclature when it came to hedge funds. It was no longer about, uh, you know, multiples or MOIC or, you know, DVPI. DVPI was now all about alpha, beta, right? Uh, Sortino ratio, sharp ratios. And you had a sales team that has been entrenched at Carla for a very long time that, you know, needed to be brought up the curve in terms of how to speak that language. Um, and hedge funds have a role in a portfolio that are very meaningful. I mean, we showed that in years like 2008, 2009, 2011. Um, but I think that th that mismatch, you know, we didn't pay a lot of attention to, didn't realize. And ultimately, when Carlisle kind of shut down all their hedge fund operations, uh, we were a casualty of that, too. So we were, you know, but but I had left about six months before that had happened. I, I decided to leave because I saw kind of the writing on the wall. Um, and I wanted to you know, venture into um, launching a quant equity fund. I thought that would be the best thing to do. Um, we, you know, there was a model that was at work. It was an AI-driven model. I was excited about it. I went to David. And I said, listen, David, this is what I'd like to do. And, and he said, look, I'm not going to stand in your way, but um, if it doesn't work out, come back. And I said, I, I, I will. I will. Oh, that's, so, yeah, yeah, that's a very stand-up yeah. thing to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So David was a guest on, on my life in four trades and I know, it was I know. amazing. Yeah. It was amazing to spend that time with him. Um, and that anecdote fits what, you know, I'm not surprised to hear that he handled it that way. 
Um, yeah. He's also a sort of diplomat at heart. <laughs> I think oh, you yeah. share that, yeah, yeah. share that passion, right? Yep. That's so exactly you, right. So it's interesting. So that was uh, your best trade, but then, you know, thinking about it, there are also parts of it. A lot of the best trades have worse trade elements and vice versa, which we're going to get to when we get to number four as well, I think. But your third trade, you just mentioned. So you leave Carlisle on your own um, volition and you you launch this AI-driven quant equity fund. Um, and this is 2016. It strikes me that we, you know, all we talk about is AI now. But yeah, that, yeah. that was, you know, that those were early days. Is this what we would we would think of as like an algo quant fund? You know, is that is that how we kind of talked about no, it? No, 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 no. It's really interesting because it, it's it's it was uh, the model was using natural language processing. Oh, to be able to decipher, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of text, and then infer from that what that would how that would impact the market. Right, and then we take that information. And we would look to, um, you know, like into call options when certain, you know, things were triggered. And these would be longer dated call options that had a lot of convexity in it. And so we would we would look to trade on that. At the same time, we had a model that would like into put options and, you know, precipitate a ladder approach to put options. Um, and then the third strategy was that we would actually write put options as well. So combining these, the writing of the put options, and you know, going long put options, and then also um, um, uh, going long the call options, combined made a lot of sense on paper, and the model sort of you know was was uh, started to work really well early on, and you know we we launched with our own capital early in 2016, and by February we were up 38 percent. We were high five. Wow, that's some. That's some yeah, we like, success. Yeah, I know. And so we were going, great, this is amazing. And so we wanted to spend a whole year trading our own capital and then show really good results for it and then go out and, and raise, you know, you know, your 20, 30, 40, 50 million for the fund. And uh, it was a team of seven of us. And uh, uh, February rolls around, Brexit happens. The AI could not compute Brexit. And then comes back and says, you know, it just... We 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 did we we were down a fair amount. Then we started to get back up again, and then Trump happens, and then AI says I could not compute that, and so um, we ended the year being down one percent. You know, our capital was gone, and that of course um, uh, it was not easy. But we decided that there's no way we're going to be able to go out if if we were able to show that in that in those stressed environments with Brexit and Trump happening in the same year. We did well, then we've got a case. But but um, so uh, that you know that lot of lessons, of course, tremendous amount of lessons. I can write a couple of volumes on that, by the way. Um, but it was uh, uh, it was something that I felt that I had to go through, and uh, it didn't work out that we were expecting. Yeah. So it is one of your worst trades. Um, it's interesting though that that there's a pattern because you it seems like it's you are constantly challenging yourself or following the thing that's most intellectually interesting to you. A bit of a risk taker in that respect. Like you leave security for the unknown again. This time it didn't work out, but there's a trend. There, there is. And what I learned later on is that I'm something that's known as a manifesting generator, according to some human design studies. And uh, what that means is that um, I need to rely on certain centers 
to to give me validation whether this is something I want to do. But oftentimes I have to be engrossed and involved in it. Only then will I realize, is this something I want to do or not? Right. So other people will say, do you want to go into banking? And they'll know whether they want to go into banking or not. For me at the time when I went in, I was like, I think I want to go, but I'm not sure. I got to try it out to really know. And then you go in and you do it and then you go, this is not for me. But but no, I'm I'm not averse to taking risks. Um, I just feel that if you don't take risks and you don't break your comfort zone, you're never going to really progress. And it's a core part of my personality and my traits. And uh, I've taken a lot of risks, Maggie, and a lot of them have not worked out for me at all. But yes, you're right. It is it is a it is a bit of a, a trade in me to kind of like you know let's 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 do this, and we're going to find out if it's going to work or not because. Uh, otherwise, we can sit here and it'll be analysis paralysis, right? We can, you know, think of all the ways in which it can't happen, yeah. and uh, and sometimes you just have to do the five, four, three, two, one rule, which is, you you know, you think of something and you go five, four, three, two, one, just do it. Don't think about it, just do it, and just then jump. we'll see where it leads. <laughs> just jump, just jump. What do you think you learned from from that experience um, in terms of funds and launching funds and your career really what did that failure teach you it was it was very humbling right you you thought that you had built all these relationships up with institutional investors that um you know would support you in endeavors like this and you you really got to know um you know that that first and foremost you know when it comes to speaking with institutional investors as opposed to family offices and high net worth individuals they're very different kettle of fish, right? And and uh, institutions are very much about tech, you know, uh, check the box exercise. You got to meet certain criteria and and uh, parameters. Um, and that all sort of came to a culmination. And you know, you, I, I realized that you had to approach each of these parties in a very different way. Uh, institutions were not going to be interested in this quant equity thing because it's just too small of a fund for them. So I was focusing more on family offices and, and ultra high net worths. Um, and just uh, understanding their utility function, their objectives. Um, so that was a big learning. Um, going into business with closest friends, where they are friends first and then become business colleagues later, bad idea. Okay, not good. I would not recommend it. It doesn't really typically work out really well. And and so that was that was another big you know ma- major lesson. Um, but just how to set up business, what to bring first into the equation, where to spend the money, um, how to hire the right talent. I mean, lots of lessons that way that, yeah. that I you know, could have done better for sure. Which, which uh, I'm assuming are paying dividends now because your fourth trade is your current trade. And I, it sounds like in some ways it grew out of the failure of the quant fund, because if that had taken off, you may have continued doing that, but it Absolutely. didn't. So you end up yeah. launching Noetic. So this one, I think we're also filing under, as I mentioned, um, best and worst, worst in terms of the challenging environment, um, but best in terms of some of the other ways you feel about it. So let's unpack all of this. Um, what is Noetic first? So what what fund do you set up now? Are you still going in this sort of esoteric, complicated financial trades or is it or is it something else yeah i think a core part of you know i'm realizing even as i'm speaking to you there there there's certain themes that that resonate throughout my life esotericism does 
So, and what is esoteric? It's just something that's left of center. Mm. Right? That, it's not mainstream, it's left of center. It's in the fringe um, where, uh, you know, you don't pay much attention to it. And then once you do start to pay much attention to it and everybody else starts to pay attention to it, all of a sudden it becomes mainstream, but it starts off on the fringe. And the other one is complexity, right? And I often try and explain to people, there's a difference between complicated and complex. Complicated is getting, you know, an astronaut to the moon. But if you follow a certain recipe and you follow it to the T, you get them to the moon. Complexity is raising a teenager. <laughs> Right, because there's so many independent variables at our play that are independent of each other, and you just don't know what the hell is going to, you know, affect what. And you just kind of look at you, uh, you, you look at them in, in in a way where you, you think it's normal, but they look at you going, "What the hell are you looking at me that for?" I'm like, "I didn't, I didn't think I did anything wrong." And so I'm know, living this right now, Saad. Like you are speaking yeah, okay. to my soul right now. <laughs> so that that's complexity, and and you know, but but to explain complexity, it, it, you know, is is something where. Um, that's very challenging, and that's something that I've always really reveled in and really enjoyed. How do you find a way to break it down into its core components and explain it in a way that they really truly understand it and appreciate it? And they're not walking away scratching their heads because you just threw a whole bunch of acronyms at them and you made them feel dumb because you sounded so smart about it, but they didn't get what you were saying, right? That defeats the purpose. So I think that's one of the core, core themes there. Noetic is really a culmination of my entire life. You know, as they say, at any given point in time, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And I just feel that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. But everything that's ever happened in my my entire life has led me to this moment. Keep in mind that ever since that event happened in Berlin, where I crossed the border and I was questioning everything and being very aware of my surroundings, I started to go down this path of really studying esoteric philosophies, philosophies in general, um, quantum physics and I came across um, the, the works of so many different people that were writing about the role that distinct plants have played in certain societies across time and culture. And what was so that came, that came, you you were searching for uh, understanding the events that had happened to you. It sounds like understanding events that happened to me, but understanding more questioning the perennial questions. Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? Because you, know? you had a near-death experience. I had a near-death experience, and I wanted to understand, you know, again, and that was rekindled after 9-11 happened, right? And you questioned absolutely everything, right? 9-11 was, was so pivotal in so many different ways because all of a sudden that entire, you know, house of cards that was set up it was, was, came, came crashing down. You never thought something like that would have happened on U.S. soil. Right? And Never. I think for, from an individual perspective, exactly what you described in your life, that everyday decisions people made determined their fate that day. If they were late to the office, if they didn't get on a plane in Boston because they overslept, if they right. went to that breakfast concert. And that so many people struggle with that. I mean, I was in New York at the time and, and in the area, so many people survivors struggled with that as much as the people who perished. It's that that sort of what seemed to them to be a random moment, much like your experience, trying to mentally come to terms with that has been so difficult still for so many people. No, you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. It's the ripple effects, right? Yeah. People don't realize that the, the, that, that the impact uh, the, uh, that uh, and, and, you know, the, the wave of grief and guilt that suicide survivors have to face 
right? When once they lose somebody that's close yeah. to them that died of that that committed suicide, it, it's it's just it's unbearable. It's profound. It leads them to suicide oftentimes. Yeah. Right. And, and they didn't, they, they were just, they, they had nothing to do with it, but they feel somehow responsible for it or the ripple effects are just too profound. And, um, so and you come, it, you, you, you on this journey where you're searching and, and this is how the, the plant, and we'll, we'll under, I know a little bit about this part of Saad's life. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, this will all make sense in a moment, but it's, it's amazing that you sort of picked up on that because it was, only a little part of the journey you were on, but somehow you yeah. recognize this is important. Yeah, I, you know, I, again, like so many things are just, you feel that it's just meant to be. Um, I was trying to understand consciousness and the role of consciousness. And I was looking for the answers in philosophy and religion. I was looking for it in quantum physics, mm-hmm. right? And and ultimately, um, there were a, a, a lot of sort of this reading that pointed me towards how certain communities explored consciousness through certain plants. Right. Um, but and but this is prevalent throughout. It's it's, you know, the blue lotus flower uh, uh, shows up a lot in Egyptian uh, uh, hieroglyphics and, and, and etchings. Uh, the Syrian root was very prominent in Mesopotamia, a very strong psychoactive component to it. The first ever rendition of anything written in Western literature is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written on Sumerian uh, tablets, talked about a plant that grows at the bottom of the river that gives you immortality. The Soma was the first mention of this sort of a plant that was written, you know, in the Rig Vedas at least six to eight thousand years ago, and that's all of, of the subcontinent, which is India, Sri Lanka, that whole area. And we still don't really know what the Soma is. Some people say it's a mushroom, some people say it's a plant, but again, it gave you immortality. So you look across Siberia; it was the Amanita muscaria. That's the red mushrooms with the white spots on it, right? Very famous. You see that in every Disney. Uh, um, cartoon almost. And and again, that is a very strong psychoactive component to it. So what was going on? Why were these being ingested? Who was ingesting them? What were the what was the reasons behind it? And, and a lot of the text suggests that it was for purposes of expanding consciousness, but it was also reserved by nobility. It was reserved by royalty. They didn't share it with the with the common people or the hoi polloi. They kept it for for certain sort of, you know, uh, uh, folks. And when you, you know, and of course in the Amazon, there's ayahuasca, salvia, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much going on in, in West Africa. There is um, um, Ibogaine, Iboga, um, and the Dogon tribe um, used to use it to commune with, you know, with their ancestors. So there's different reasons and rationales for it, but, um, but they have a lot of similar traits. And this was shown by way of, cave art that they found in Australia, South Africa, and Europe, right? Australia, South Africa, all Europe, over right? the place, right? But they're all 25 to 50,000 years old. But when you compare the cave art, they're so incredibly similar. They show chimeras and therianthropes, and they show these geometric patterns and hand patterns, and they show eyes. And they're like, did the same person from Australia go to South Africa and then did this and they had an exhibition perhaps in Europe? <laughs> no, right? It's, it's, so why is that? And, and that was intriguing to me. And there's a beautiful book written, it's called The Visionary by Graham Hancock, which is a real turning point for me um, because I ultimately befriended him and got to know him and had a discussion about this with him and said, why is this? Is, this, is it because it's something that's in our consciousness and we're all tapping into it? Or is it that we all see distinct things regardless of our cultural background, heritage, ethnicity, whatnot? We're mm-hmm. seeing the same things, and it comes in certain waves and patterns. 
Now, I had never done any of this stuff or I'd never dabbled in it. I'd never taken it, never ingested a mushroom, nothing. Right. You know? This is like, I'm, I'm imagining this is the banker fund manager that we can hear fell deep down the rabbit hole when you find this. Because you can, you can tell from your enthusiasm and all the research you've done that you've locked on this now and you, you've, 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 you've run to something. You know, I blame Australia and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I had to travel to Australia from Toronto and I had to go to Melbourne, right? Because that's where VFMC and that's where Future Fund, all those guys are there. And that damn trek took me 27 hours. Okay. So it's like coming out of solitary confinement when you, you know, uh, disembark and you find yourself like I know who I am. But I had a lot of time to read on that. Like you, you can only watch so many movies. And, and uh, so I, I, I took a lot of those books with me and, and I had a lot of time to read. And this is where I figured out, wow, this is something that needs to be looked into a lot more. And there were a lot of Harvard professors uh, that had written about this. Uh, Carl Rook had written about it. Uh, you know, Timothy Leary was sort of on to it. Um, it was it was, you know, it was a fascinating time for me because I was learning a lot about this. And ultimately, I befriended Graham and I said, can I talk to you about it? And we became friends. And then he said, look, uh, have you ever tried this? I'm like, no, no, yeah, no. He's like, well, why don't you come down to Brazil with me? I'm like, oh, well, who's going? And he's like, well, we're going to go and study the ways of the Shipibo tribe. And there's going to be Professor Michael Winkleman there. And there's going to be Professor Luis Eduardo Luna there. And you'll really enjoy it. And uh, I convinced my wife that I should go to this. And, and I, I, I went down and I spent- I think this is where the manifesting generator uh, <laughs> comes in, right? Exactly. Like, I've got to do I, it. <laughs> See. I got to do it. I got to do it. I felt that I had to, it was, a, it was a very strong calling, but also to be around these luminaries, Luis Eduardo Luna and Michael Winkleman and Graham there too, and really learn from them and truly understand the role that these medicines have played across time and culture was just profound. But also to now- understand the ways of this tribe, the Shipibo tribe, um, was, was just, I just couldn't, I couldn't give up that opportunity. So that's what I did at the age of 38 or 39. It was in the year 2009. I went down to Brazil. I told the guys that I'm taking two weeks off. They're where are you going? Can't tell you really. I, I only, I only, um, told, I mentioned this to Warren Wright, who's my current you know, business partner and the co-founder at Noetic, but this is really the beginning of Noetic, I feel. And in 2009, I went down, spent two weeks there, and was had five distinct ceremonies with a plant medicine called ayahuasca. Um, never having taken any psychedelic before in my life, uh, for that matter, any other substance. And it was um, a, a profound experience, would, would be a, a, a hell of an understatement. An experience are hard, hard to find words for. You know, people say, well, what did, what did you see? What did you experience? And I go, I, I can't explain it because I don't think my imagination has the vocabulary to be able to explain it to you. But what I can explain is the essence that you get from it. And it's almost like you've been looking out at the world from a dirty window. Mm. And somebody comes along and takes a squeegee and cleans that window for you. And now you're able to see the world in a very different way. That was my experience. I have to say that that is not, it's not typical either. I mean, it, people will have very different experiences and a lot of people have a very difficult experience with this. That's why these are incredibly powerful molecules 
and they need to be respected. They need to be revered. They need to be approached with with reverence and um, and and there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. Tremendous amount of preparation for a month in advance. You can't eat red meat. You've got to cut out all salt. You can't eat. You can have. You cannot have any refined sugar. You've got to stick to vegetables. The raw, the better, right? And also, you have to sort of just get your frame of mind properly set for it. So, it, and and then of course during the experience itself is incredibly taxing. So people go, why do it? Right? Why why go through that exercise? Because you're purging a great deal from all ends. You're purging. It's just it's a it's a long drawn out purging exercise. Um, and uh, you're crying a lot and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a, one of those monumental experiences, but at the same time, it's not something that you want to rush back into. Right. So it was transformational. Did you come away feeling healed, feeling a new sense of knowledge, a new sense of direction? I came away without having any fear of death any longer. Because to me, it was made very clear to me, based on what I had experienced, that this cycle never ends, really. This game never ends. Energy transfers. It doesn't die. Mm -hmm. And so you're constantly evolving. You're not evolving as Saad or Maggie. You're evolving as the core essence of the fabric of the universe and existence itself. And so um, without getting too woo-woo on everybody on this Mm -hmm. this session, it it is a very – it's a – it's a very personalized experience, of course, but for me, the downloads were uh, the death should not be feared. and Which that- is a huge thing to overcome for you, given what you had been through. Precisely. 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 So you have a, this, this very, very profound experience of metamorphosis. I mean, we, we don't have any good words for it because it was so big in your life, but you then choose to make this your business as well. Why? At that time, at that time, obviously there was no business idea behind this. Or, uh, but I just came back, and I the first person that I really spoke to about this was Warren. Warren Wright. Warren was the chief investment officer at DGAM, and you know, soon to be Carlyle uh, Liquid Markets Group. And Warren was the only one. Then Warren and I traveled a lot together, and we shared a common interest in all of this. Uh, um, so. When I shared it with him, we both went down this rabbit hole of, of, of researching and studying it more. You know, we got in touch with the, the, the professors that had been talking about this and working with this at Johns Hopkins at Harvard and Imperial College in London, um, at the University of California, San Diego, University of California, Los Angeles. I mean, there were Basel University in Switzerland. You know, we were just going, wow, what is this? Why, why don't more people know about this? But what's the mechanism of action? What's actually happening? What are the molecules in there that are behaving in the manner that they are and where are they going in the brain? What are they triggering? Why is it that you've got so many people now we've got about hundred years of more than hundred years of anecdotal evidence that clearly suggests that there are profound benefits to this if it's done in the right way that there's therapeutic there's, benefits. You know, profoundly, right? And so what's actually going on? And so from 2009 when I had this experience for the next five, eight years, you know, that's what the research and the study was all about. When Cubed, which is the Quant Equity Fund, we closed that down in 2017, and um, you know I'd, I was advising a, a, a few players in, in in the market, you know the larger private equity firms and some of the venture firms. Um, we started to see in 2018 that a market was developing, where um, there was you know an opportunity to put a private funding towards research and actual commercialization of certain. 
plant-based entheogens, as they call them, or psychedelics, right? Um, there was uh, Sage Therapeutics, there was Atai Life Sciences, that's Christian Angermeyer's company and, and, and his work, Compass Pathways. Um, and, you know, I, we called up some of the folks that we knew in the industry uh, through my hedge fund days that were running $60 billion credit shops that had invested in this to go, why are you investing in it? And they said, well, this is where we think the future is going. And, and, and this is why we think it's going to be profound. And it's low toxicity. It's highly efficacious. Uh, and it'll ultimately get through FDA and DEA, but there, there are risks, of course. So Warren and I decided to just put our own money to work and put it in. And then friends and family started to find out and said, well, can you take our money? And, and I was like, well, I guess we have to set up a fund. And I always liked the word noetic because that's sort of what kind of describes my philosophy and approach, which is, you know, everything to do with the intellect and your experiences as a human, um, uh, the noetic qualities. And so we set up Noetic in February of 2020. Uh, we opened the fund up. We created a fund and opened it up for others to come in. And that was the beginning of, of the Noetic Fund. Uh, we ended up making 24 investments in the first fund. We raised uh, uh, $35 million, uh, $33 million, uh, for, for fund number one. Uh, we looked at 1,000 companies. Um, and we're looking specifically at very science-backed. So what Noetic does is, Noetic is a fund that is focused on the central nervous system. We are not a psychedelic fund. Mm. We're a fund that is focused on central nervous system or mental health. And we're looking at very science-backed uh, opportunities that have a strong IP. IP is important intellectual property because that allows it to be scalable and accessible and to be rolled out. Um, we're looking at you know very research-driven, science-backed, non CPG, non-consumer packaged good approach to actually looking at curing these ailments as opposed to just treating the symptom. And there's yeah. just a tremendous amount of research out there that suggests that many of the what, what's going on in psychedelic drug development is important, but there are other areas that are important to us too, like magnetic resonance technology, medical devices, digital therapeutics, vagus nerve stimulation. There's a lot going on in this space. It's a renaissance period for neuroscience. That which is which is tremendous. Um, it's interesting that so we talked about this being the best and worst. What let let's cover the worst part because it's as we've been hearing more and more about it. So you you went down the rabbit hole well before it popped up on the radar, but there was this sort of wave. We've all seen the reports on television about you know the benefits of this curing addiction, working with people who have suicidal thoughts of, you know, um, people were really therapy resistant. Um, so there's been a lot of buzz, but it's been a tough market, hasn't it? It's been a, it's been a difficult market in terms of the sort of investment climate around this. Why is that? And what have you seen? It's been a difficult market because there was a lot of hype initially. Yeah. That hype was on the back of what happened in cannabis. And you had a lot of cannabis investors that came onto the scene to say, Hey, listen, the people that went in, that the investors that got into cannabis early in the game did really, really well. And so here psychedelics comes along. It's kind of like cannabis, which it isn't. Like it's just apples and oranges, man. It's just, you cannot be so, you know, And but there was that sentiment. And uh, these hype-driven investors didn't want to lose out and they had FOMO. And so they got in the 
public markets were quite receptive to this. A lot of these companies were looking to list on the public exchange. And, you know, there's well over there's 80 publicly traded stocks uh, between Canada, the U.S., and Europe that that are in in psychedelics. Uh, and so that hype um, really kind of drove up valuations, prices, and all of that ultimately came crashing down. Now we were of course involved in in a lot of those trades where you know we only invest in private companies and some of them went public but we exited most of those positions at a time that was that suited us because we didn't think that what how the public markets were valuing these really biotech pharma plays made any sense mm. there was no revenue they had a long path you didn't know about regulators they're going to approve it the da was was still on the sideline and there was a lot of assumptions made, and all of a sudden you're seeing these companies well over a billion. No, no, that doesn't make any sense. So we exited, did well for our portfolio, of course, but then we went into the slump. The last year and a half, you know, um, it's now we're coming out of it for sure, but it was a very, very, very difficult period of time, um, especially in light of the the macro headwinds that we've been facing. And you're in VC, and everybody's looking for liquidity to put money to work in a VC opportunity that has a long tail to it, you're going to go, no, that's not my first choice to go. And it's like, okay, uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll. so it, it's been, it's been incredibly challenging that way, but, and then also to work with your portfolio companies that are constantly in need of raising more and more money in this environment. Right. And they're money. Good. They're good companies that are doing well and they're generating, they're showing results, but it's been so difficult to raise money for them that that's been the real challenge. This has been the most difficult period of time in my career in capital markets, in, in, in asset management um, uh, to, to raise money for. So unless you're specifically doing credit or if you've got an AI bent, it's not that easy. Yeah, that's right. Everybody, all, all the money's rushing there and and um, it, it's scarce elsewhere. So yet you remain optimistic and this is why it's your best trade. Well, our fund one has done phenomenally well so far, right? And we've, we've so had- So all those six- lessons learned from some of the past- yes, that's right. That's right. We chose well. We, I think we got lucky. It was luck and timing. I, I, I kind of we always try and revert back to the David Rubenstein humility of things. And, and uh, so, yes, I think I just was in the right place at the right time. But, uh, you know, we, we had six exits. So so that, that has uh, uh, done well for fund number one. We've got- some other events taking place in the portfolio that are going to do really well for it. Now we're on fund number two, but this is part and parcel of a zeitgeist movement that I have sort of identified. I feel that it's just, you know, whether you look at um, cryptocurrency, whether you look at what's happening with, with psychedelic drug development, what's happening in the wellness space overall, you know, what's happening with, with decentralization of currencies, what's happening with climate change as well. The one theme is everybody wants agency. They want to take agency. They want to take agency back. They want to say this is, you know, you know, I I I want to have access to you know a certain currency and want to do it this way. I want it to be decentralized. I want it to be specific to what I want and need and so on. It's it's about personalization and medicine is going towards personalization, right? No two people are the same. You can't say, well, take this exact same dose for everybody. Everybody would be, no, no. I mean, our DNA, our makeup, our framework, epigenetics plays a huge part in it. Our environment, we're all wired differently, 
right? And it's so it's it's different strokes for different folks, and we have to understand that we've got to, you know, personalize medicine, and only then will it start to work. There is no deeper or more profound example of personalized medicine than when it comes to psychedelics, because you could give fifty thousand people, you know, the exact same dosage of of this medicine. And um, they will have 50,000 different experiences. No two people will have the same experience, I think, right? So, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it is a, we're riding this wave um, within the, uh, you know, the, our industry in, in itself, uh, wellness, it is by far the fastest growing segment in the market, um, number one. Number two, we have learned so much from oncology, from cancer research. And we're we're using that we're 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 you know putting that into and and transferring that information knowledge. Um, AI has done a profound amount of of has has brought a lot to the to the table as well. Now we don't need to put two or three molecules together and, and put it in a petri dish and wait three days to watch it and see what reaction comes about. AI can tell us exactly the various permutations that will bring about different outcomes. And we've got 100 years of anecdotal evidence that's now finally out in terms of how it affects the certain receptors the way it does as an agonist or, or as an antagonist. So with all of that, the final part is we've learned more about the human brain in the last five years than any other point in history. And the pandemic had a huge role to play there. Loneliness is the biggest epidemic in the U.S. The U.S. Surgeon General just went around. The whole U.S. came back and said, we missed the boat. It's not COVID or anything else. It's loneliness. Loneliness leads to inflammatory-related ailments, right? Then leads to trauma, big T, small T trauma. Then leads to inflammatory-related ailments. I mean, it's got physiological factors that it results in, but people don't realize that if you're depressed over a long period of time, it's going to lead to inflammatory-related ailments, autoimmune disorders, cancer, and so on. And how is it that that... You know, that there's a country with all the technological advancement we have that we're getting lonelier every day. We, we don't have community. We're not able to share a lot more. Everybody's involved in their screens. And now for the next generation, you've got teenagers. I've got an 18-year-old and a 23-year-old. And I've seen how they've grown up with these devices. Every time that phone dings or blings, it's a dopamine trigger. And because you got to look at it. And so it's a dopamine response. Now, you're, if you're growing up with these instruments, you're con- you're wired to be, you know, looking out for these dopamine triggers, right, and dopamine responses. That's not healthy at all because when you don't get that, when you don't get the like, the validation, the thumbs up, whatever, you get upset, you get angry, you get moody, um, you know, and it starts to bother you, and that affects your mental health. So mental health is mental wealth. There's going to be ups and downs here. I think that with the market coming back the way it is, Private markets are looking at this very seriously. Um, FDA has certainly shown over the last five, six years that many of these molecules and psychedelics are breakthrough designation, BTD status. So all moving in the right direction, Maggie. And I I think that uh, this is a long game, but it's like being in oncology very early in the game. Um, And there's no no doubt that we're going to see cures for many of these ailments over the next two years. Absolutely no doubt. One thing that strikes me when I hear you talk about it, and um, we were at an RV event, uh, which is where we met, and there were others who were uh, slightly different avenues, but along the same thing. I don't think anyone in finance is having as much fun or is as passionate as you all are. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't see that as much. I, 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 we're very passionate about it. And I'll tell you one of the biggest reasons. I have two daughters, age 23 and 18, and between the two of them, 
at this point in their life, they've known five individuals in their ecosystem that have committed suicide. <sighs> now, how, how is that right in any way? I'm 51. I know one individual in my life that has committed suicide, a very dear We are friend. experiencing a, a, a similar situation here. And you, we live in completely different places. But this, we had the same conversation. My children have known more people, either their peers or parents, that have committed. They've been to more funerals of people that have committed suicide than, than I have known in my life. It's extraordinary. That's right. And, and, and that is not just, you know, specific to your family or my family. That is happening across the board, right? And, and, um, and that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. And, and so the first thing we need to do is talk about mental health. The first thing we need to do is talk about how this is impacting everybody and what's really behind it. And then we need to start talking about all the ways in which we can actually cure this, not treat it. And believe me, SSRIs have been a huge disappointment. And all the big pharma companies know that. But now we're forcing their hand into looking down a pathway. That, but by the way, they're very interested in now, right? Before yeah. they weren't. The well, pharma it's an, ec- it's an epidemic. <laughs> it is. And where there's it an is. epidemic, there's an opportunity. Yeah. yeah Saad, exactly. I'm so inspired by your passion every time we talk. Uh, little did I know that there is an amazing life story behind it too. It has been so much fun. We went a little long, but it was worth it. It's, it's been so, so amazing to catch up. You have a lot of wisdom to share. Oh no, you've been very kind and so always a pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Maggie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.